you turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to start in Mark chapter 10 today. I've been preaching a series of sermons for the past several months through the Gospel of Mark. Today I'm going to preach on an expanded section of Scripture starting in Mark chapter 10, verse 46. And I want to go all the way to chapter 11, verse 26. So let me begin with a word of prayer. And I'll read this passage throughout the sermon. Heavenly Father, we pray that this familiar passage of Scripture of Jesus entering Jerusalem will speak truth to our hearts and give us your insight and understanding. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You will notice that in this passage of Scripture before it, in Mark chapter 10, I had mentioned last week in verse 32, it was the first time Jerusalem was mentioned as a place of destination of where Christ was headed. It says in verse 32, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was going before them. This is anticipating what we celebrate on Palm Sunday, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Mark is starting to conclude his gospel account leading up to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now today, we're starting in verse 46, where they come to Jericho. They're going through Jericho, and then in chapter 11, he will finally enter Jerusalem there on Palm Sunday. But here's what I want to do for you to tie this together. And I'm going to use Genesis chapter 3 as a backbone for you to explain some parallels and some contrast with this passage of Scripture. Let me go back and remind you about a couple of things in Genesis chapter 3. There's five things I want to point out. In Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and the woman ate of the fruit, what happened to their eyes? The Bible says their eyes were opened. Of course, it was opened to their sin and their shame. Then what happened? God came in the garden. And number two, He inspected them and saw them and caught them in their sin. Third thing I want to point out is what were they wearing at the time? They were wearing fig leaves. Okay, they're trying to protect themselves and cover themselves with fig leaves. And then after God pronounces his judgments and even fixes their marriage there, brings them back together, uh, God kicks them out of the garden. Of course, whenever God kicked them out of the garden, what did he send them out with? He sent them out with hope, the hope of redemption and looking forward to the coming of Christ. So there's five things I want to put together for you and overlay this passage of Scripture with these five things and show you some similarities here. Number one, eyes are being opened. There's an inspection here in Jerusalem and in the temple. There's a fig tree that's going to be cursed. Jesus is going to kick people out of the temple, which is also a new garden. And then he's going to give hope of a new future, a new people, and move on with redemption. Let me show you how this works. First of all, there's the eye-opening passage. Here's the blind man that is Bartimaeus. Look at verse 46. They came to Jerusalem. He went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude. Blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. 
And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him to be quiet. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. Then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer, rise, he is calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. Let me make a few comments about this passage of Scripture. First of all, it, po- it points out a single or singular one blind man. Matthew's account points out two blind men here. And Mark is emphasizing this one blind man. There are two there because we know Matthew tells us. But Mark is focusing on this man. He, he gives him his name. He's a son of Timaeus. That most likely, this is someone who would become well-known among the disciples later on and even in the Christian church. That's why he calls him by name and who his father is. But notice who he acknowledges the father of David, or excuse me, the father of Jesus. He calls him da- Jesus, son of David. Have mercy upon me. This is very important concerning this passage of Scripture. Son of David does not simply mean that David was your great-great-great-great-grandfather or something like that, or you're just in the lineage of David. Son of David means Messiah. Son of David is, is going back to the fact that God promised David that his son, that a son would come from him and inherit the kingdom and kingship. This is a kingly term. This is a messianic term that this blind man knows about Jesus. This is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that son of David is being referenced to concerning Jesus Christ. And here's the irony that Mark wants you to grab from this. And that is the man's blind. The man has have a work, he has a work of the Holy Spirit in his life that he intuitively knows that this is Jesus from Nazareth is now the son of David. Look at verse 47. It was when he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth. That's basically Jesus's last name that he grew up with. This is Jesus Nazareth or Jesus of Nazareth, where he came from. He changes the name here and gives him the title, not Jesus of Nazareth, but Jesus, son of David. Have mercy on me. Mark wants you to see Number one, the work of the Holy Spirit in this man's life. Ironically, he is blind, but of all the people there, he's the one that picks up on the truth that this is the king, the king coming to his city. This is why the next passage is very important. David, King David, was enthroned in Jerusalem. Jesus Christ is coming to Jerusalem, and he is coming to his royal city. For inspection. You will notice as well when you think about this, why would Mark want to put this in the Bible and include this, even Matthew and Mark and Luke? Because when you're reading this, your, your prayer should be the same Lord, 
Open my eyes. Open my eyes that I may see the son of David. Mark wants you to to be like the blind man who has his eyes open as as you read about the last part of Jesus' life, this last week of his life. One irony about this is that there's a difference between his request here and the request of the disciples. Remember last week, the disciples, two disciples said, we want you, Jesus Christ, to do whatever we ask. And Jesus says in verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? Well, the same thing. Jesus says this to the blind man. What do you want me to do for you? The disciples asked to be positioned there in the highest parts of glory with Jesus Christ. We talked about that last week. This blind man just simply wants to receive his sight. He receives his sight. It's a humble request. His eyes are open. And yet there's another irony at the very end of this passage in verse 52. Jesus does not really tell him to follow me. Jesus tells him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Well, which way did he go? Did he go back home? Which way did he go? It's, Mark says this, immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. That was his way. His new way was following Christ. His way was following the Lord Jesus Christ, and now he becomes a disciple. His eyes are open. It's a contrast from Adam and Eve. Whenever their eyes are open, they see their sin. They see their shame. When this man's eyes are open, he follows the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we saw in the Garden of Eden, God goes into the garden and inspects what his people do. Well, here, God is going to go into a new garden and inspect the city and the temple. Now, this is very important. I'm not exaggerating or or bringing a false metaphor here. In the Bible, things move move from garden to temple to city. The garden in the Garden of Eden was a prototype of the temple to come. It was a prototype of the city to come. And all this fits even together with with even marriage. Uh, The king is like the king. The kingdom is like the the, the bride that he is married to. And this is why in the book of Revelation, it ends not with a little garden, but the huge, beautiful city of God that comes down like a bride adorned for her husband. That's the motif you need to understand here. Here is the king, the husband... The same God who came into the Garden of Eden, He is going to go now into His city of Jerusalem and inspect. Let me read it to you. Well known to you all. Verse 1, Matthew 11, verse 1. Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, He sent two of His disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one is set. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say to them, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside of the street. And they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing? Loosening the colt. And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. So they 
let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let me pause right there. Anytime you see God looking in the Bible, it is God judging. That's what God does with his eyes. In Genesis chapter 1, whenever he makes all things, he looks at it and he declares it good. He judges creation as being good. Here, Jesus Christ is going into Jerusalem and he goes into the temple. And notice this, the outside of Jerusalem is praising him and worshiping him. And he goes in there and he looks around at Jerusalem and in the temple. Now, of course, it doesn't tell you what the verdict is. It doesn't tell you how he judges it. We're going to find out in the next, in the next section. But you see the same thing with the Garden of Eden. God goes into the garden and he's looking at Adam and he says, Adam, where are you? And he's actually staring at Adam right there, trying to hide behind the fig tree, behind, behind the, fig, the fig branches, and, or the fig leaves. And that's what Jesus is doing right here. He is looking in Jerusalem, looking in his temple. He is inspecting this, just like he inspected the Garden of Eden, and just like God always does whenever he is looking. Now let me give you another little metaphor to think about about Jerusalem here, because Jerusalem, the garden, the temple, the bride, all these metaphors kind of come together. And think about the hypocrisy that you can sense with the city of Jerusalem. The outside of Jerusalem is praising Jesus. The outside of Jerusalem is saying, Hosanna, praise be to you. The uh, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're acknowledging him as King David. But when he comes into Jerusalem, especially into this inner sanctum of the, whole, of the temple, he sees the rot. He sees the evil and the horribleness of the temple inside Jerusalem. I think it's a good illustration of hypocrisy. The outside of Jerusalem is praising the Lord Jesus Christ with their words, with their mouth. The inside of Jerusalem is corrupt, is evil, is run by a den of thieves. We're going to see that very soon. But that's what you see in the first part here is Jesus' inspection of Jerusalem and the temple on Palm Sunday. And then on the next day, look at verse 12. Here's where we move into cursing the fig tree. Verse 12. The next day, when they had come out of Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps it would find... Some, some figs on it. When he came to it, and he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to the fig tree here, he says, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So before Jesus goes into the temple here, there's a symbol or there's a sign of things to come. It's the curse 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a judgment being pronounced to Jesus. And the reason why this is here is because you can, it helps you interpret Jerusalem and interpret the temple. God expected Israel to be like a fruitful fig tree. And do you know when God will come and inspect you? Do you know when the season and does he ever tell you, hey, I'm coming, I'm going to come inspect. No, you should always be ready for inspection. That's why Mark is saying this fig tree did not produce figs and it was not even the season for figs. It was not even the season for figs and Jesus still cursed the fig tree. The point is that Jerusalem should have been ready in season or out of season. Jerusalem should have been producing good fruit to God not knowing when Jesus is going to show up, not, not, not knowing when the king would show up for inspection. Well, here the king shows up for inspection, and now he curses the fig tree. You can kind of think about this in Genesis chapter 3. It seems that there is a curse upon those fig leaves. God tells them to remove those fig leaves that Adam and Eve are protecting themselves with. He gives them animal clothes or leather from an from a animal that he had to sacrifice on their behalf and clothe them with those garments. Same thing you see here. God, Jesus is in the garden, so to speak, the city. Now he's going to curse them with this symbol of the, fig, of the fig tree. Moving forward, Jesus now enters into the holy place. That is the temple, the verse 15. And he's going to kick them out. Just like God kicked them out of the Garden of Eden. In verse 15, they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went out into the temple and began to drive out those who had sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares throughout the temple. Then he taught them, saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you made it into a den of thieves? And the scribes and the priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. Notice, very similar to the Garden of Eden. God inspects them, curses are pronounced, and God kicks them out. Of the garden. Jesus comes here into Jerusalem, inspects them, pronounces a curse on the symbolic fig tree, kicks them out of the garden of the temple. You need to remember that this temple was decorated like the Garden of Eden. There were, there were trees on the walls, painted on the walls, engraved on the walls, so that it would remind the people that God, when he brings a high priest into the temple, it's like, I'm allowing you to come back into the Garden of Eden. So this is a type of garden. And what is Jesus doing? He's kicking them out just like he did in Genesis chapter 3. There's two quotes that Jesus welds together here in verse 17. Is it not written, my house should be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you made it into a den of thieves. This comes from Isaiah chapter 56 verse 7 and Jeremiah 7 verse 11. This is before the fall of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. When you read the Old Testament with Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah, they're doing the same things in the Old Testament with that former temple. 
They were murderous. They would would rob people. They were idolaters. And they deserved the judgment of God. At this time in history, this Jewish temple deserves the judgment of Jesus Christ. And what he's doing when he kicks them out, that he's symbolizing the judgment to come. He's removing them from the garden. But let me ask you this. Whenever Jesus gets rid of the old, does the Bible stop? No. After every death, there's a resurrection. And this is where we talk about the new kingdom to come concerning the church and the forgiveness of sins. Look at this in verse 20. With the hope of a new future. Look at verse 20. It says, Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. He's rather shocked of how quick it withered away. Jesus answered and said to him, Have faith in God. Assuredly, I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes in those things that he says, it will be done. He will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you will receive them and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Let's walk, work through this passage what's, and what's happening here. You may have heard that, that phrase, the faith that moves mountains, right? Well, this is where it comes from. In verse 23, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, It will be done. What's important in this passage is the word this. Did you realize that Jesus is standing on a mountain when he says this? He is pointing really down to to Mount Zion, to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built on a mountain. And he's saying to his disciples, if you ask and pray, may this mountain be cast into the sea, it will be done. Meaning this, the nations, the Romans, are part of the sea. The nations are a sea. And Jesus is saying that the the nations are going to destroy this mountain. Pray that God's justice, pray that all things, this will be removed and it will be done. This is what the book of Revelation is about, primarily. Most of the book of Revelation is about how Rome came in there and destroyed this mountain. It was cast into the sea. And so whenever this Jerusalem, this, new, this old Jerusalem, this old temple is totally destroyed, what's the world got to look forward to? What hope is there for the world? Well, it's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that offers forgiveness to the nations. That's why he ends this section with verse 24, 25, and 26 concerning the prayers of the church, the prayers, for his, the prayers of his people, and the prayers for forgiveness. Do you remember what Jesus indicted or condemned the old temple for? My house shall be a house of what? Prayer 
for the nations. Well, the nations are going to come and swamp the old. Now he ends this section telling his disciples to do what? To pray. To pray and to have forgiveness. The movement here is Jesus is saying this, that the old Jerusalem, the old Sinai is gone. I'm kicking them out. It's all symbolized with this. But we're moving forward with a new temple, a new Jerusalem, a new kingdom where there's truly going to be forgiveness of sins. That's why also in verse 25, he encourages his people to be forgiving. The greatest way that you can show that you have forgiveness is when you extend forgiveness to others. In verse 25, whenever he says in the New King James, it says, whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him. He's not talking about posture like, you know, I'm standing up right now. What he's talking about in that word standing, it means steadfast. Every time that passage is mentioned, it says, so basically it should be interpreted something like this. Whenever you want to be steadfast praying, whenever you are steadfast praying, whenever you persevere in praying, that's what that standing there is meaning. He wants the church to be steadfast in offering the forgiveness of sins to the world. And he wants the church to be forgiving toward all those that have offended her. The greatest sign of forgiveness is whenever Jesus Christ is dying on the cross while he's being murdered, and he says, Lord, forgive them. They do not know what they do. Whenever Jesus Christ opens our eyes to the gospel, he says, just like he said to the blind man, go your way. And then we turn and follow him just like blind man Bartimaeus did. Oftentimes people will offend us, but Jesus Christ encourages us to be forgiving just as much as he has been forgiving. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll comfort us, Lord, with the forgiveness of all of our sins and comfort us, Lord, to know that we are part of your new Jerusalem and you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we give you thanks, Lord, that you continually renew your grace to our lives over and over. And we pray, Father in heaven, that you will strengthen us with the power of the Spirit to bring even more people to saving faith in Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen.